The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, we are going to be looking at, on this Palm Sunday, historically that means the week before Jesus was gave himself to be crucified, where he was welcomed by the crowds, thousands and thousands actually in Jerusalem that was uh, incredibly busy at that time since it was a very important time for the Jews. People came from all over the world who were Jewish to celebrate, and they welcomed the Lord Jesus really as the king in fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture at the beginning of the week, waving branches, hail Jesus, king of the Jews, and then ended up shouting, crucify him, crucify him, just a few days later, the fickle mob. But anyway, historically today is known as Palm Sunday. But we will be in Acts 17, where every day and every Sunday was Resurrection Sunday for Paul. Before we get there, I just want to dismiss our children for Children's Church. If you are in fifth grade on down and would like to be a part of uh, children's time as they study the Bible together, you can go ahead and meet back in the lobby. It looks like most of them already went. And today the teacher is the Lyles family, Mr. and Mrs. Lyles. So they'll have a good time looking at God's Word together. Also, I want to thank the those who worked at Parents' Night Out last night where several parents were able to be blessed and be relieved as you served watching their children. Hey, if you went out on a, if you went out on Parents' Night Out, can you raise your hand if you're not too shy? Yeah, look at that. There's people proud of it, raising both hands. Woo-hoo! First date in a year. Yay! So thank you, servants of Parents' Night Out. And also, I sent out an email, made an announcement about baby dedication. We want to have the next, hopefully, four weeks or so. And I have three takers at this point. I still wanted to extend that opportunity if you wanted to have prayer time dedication for your child uh, before the local body of Christ here. Let me know personally, white card, email, or the church office, and we'll coordinate on a date that works for everyone. Okay, with that, let's go ahead and... Go to the book of Acts, chapter 17, and we're going to look at the first 15 verses of this long chapter that goes 34 verses in our English Bible. The title of the sermon today is called Thessalonica and Berea. Those are two cities historically that Paul visited. Thessalonica and Berea, Paul's church planting paradigm. Or paradigm, that's a big word. Paradigm meaning his established method of how things went when he went out and preached the gospel. He didn't do it haphazardly or without thought and prayer. He had an established method, and he was in control of some of those factors and variables, and then also God was in control of some of the byproducts byproducts and results of how Paul did ministry. And so we're going to see that. We've been looking at Paul's missionary journeys. He did a one, uh, we looked at his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13 and 14, and Paul would go from city to city, mostly new cities he'd never been at before, regions he'd never been before, preaching the gospel of Christianity. And then if some believed, he'd gather them together, train them, try to establish a church, and then he would move on and train up leadership there. And so we saw how he did that for almost two years in his first missionary journey. And there was a pattern and a routine that was established. And then now we're in looking at his second missionary journey, which is a little longer, almost It'll take about three years of Paul's life on the road, over 2,000 miles that he'll travel over dangerous seas and rugged terrain. And 2,000 years ago, 
it's very difficult to travel the distance in the, in the places that he's going. And again, he's sticking to his same methodology, his same convictions, his same guidelines. And that's clearly established here in the cities of Thessalonica and Berea. And so that's why I call it Paul's church planting paradigm. And there are things that we can glean from this of what the Apostle Paul did 2,000 years ago. There are principles that he abided by, theology and convictions and beliefs that he had that transcend time. 2,000 years later, there are some things here that we can still hold to and follow Paul's model. And it would help us in local church ministry, but also in missions and how we go out into the world locally and globally to do missions just the way the apostle Paul did. There are differences as well. Paul was an apostle. Uh, I am not, and I would say there are no apostles today. They were for the first century to establish the church, lay the foundation, and also to write the New Testament for us, and they did. God has preserved it, given it to us. So on the one hand, we don't have apostles today, but on the other hand, we do have apostles today. They are right here. You can see the Apostle Paul and what he taught and the other apostles as well. And through God's Spirit, that becomes a guide for us to follow. So here at Thessalonica and Berea, these two cities, Paul's church planting paradigm. I came up with seven principles in this text that became seven principles of Paul's typical missionary work from city to city, and as I go, I'm actually going to add two or three more that flow from the text. Uh, Just by way of summary, it is now the Apostle Paul, it's about 50 A.D. The Apostle Paul has been saved about 15 years. He's a former uh, trained Jewish rabbi, Christian hater, Christian killer, went by the name of Saul, where he was trained in Jerusalem. And God saved him through the glorious gospel. God saved about 35 A.D., about five years after Jesus Christ started the church and ascended back into heaven. And Paul is, like I said, on his second missionary journey. And God called the apostle Paul after saving him and changing his life radically to be a unique apostle. There were 12 apostles of Jesus who focused on Jerusalem, that area. And then God called Paul a little later, five years after the other apostles, to be the special apostle called the apostle to the Gentiles, uh, the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. And that's what Paul is in the midst of doing, and we're seeing him do that. Most of us, I would say, are not Jewish that are here today. So if you're a Christian and you're not Jewish, then you are a Gentile believer. And part of your history and lineage goes all the way back to the apostle Paul and the work that he did. So In a way, the book of Acts is a biography, not just of the church, but of every Christian. It's very exciting. Um, Also, the Apostle Paul, this book was written by Luke, an associate of Paul, and Luke was an eyewitness of some of these events. And uh, so let's go ahead and look at chapter 17, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 15, as I said. And before we get to verse 1, just so we know where Paul is in his second missionary journey, he's traveling primarily with a mature believer named Silas. Silas was a Jew, but he was a Christian, became a Christian, a fulfilled Jew. He's from Jerusalem. He was very highly respected in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, he was handpicked by the apostles in Jerusalem to represent the church when there was a controversy 300 miles north in Antioch. Paul was very impressed with Silas, the way he conducted himself and his mature faith. And as a result, Paul decided, when I go on my next missionary journey, I want Silas to be my partner. And so he has been 
on the second missionary journey. Very reliable, faithful, mature man of God, Silas. On the way, they picked up a young convert named Timothy as they went on their second missionary journey. And Timothy's probably in his just a late teenager, for all we know. Just a young, new believer, and Paul wants to train him. And Paul's having him go on this very dangerous trip. And Timothy was willing to go. And even more so amazing, his mother and grandmother let him go on this trip with the Apostle Paul, knowing that his life would be on the line. So, And then they meet uh, Dr. Luke. So that's their missionary team is growing as they go and travel from city to city. That's also going to happen when they go into these two cities here. So they just went through Philippi. It was all of chapter 16. Preached the gospel. People got saved. Uh, some embraced the gospel. Many rejected it. Paul was persecuted, chased out of town from Philippi, and now he's moving on, going west, and he's going to travel about 100 miles now to this very significant city in Paul's day called Thessalonica. So let's go ahead and and look at it and these principles about Paul's mission. We'll just take them one at a time. Paul is now leaving Philippi. He most recently ended up in a prison in Philippi. His crime was preaching Jesus as Savior. Does that seem like a crime? I thought we had freedom of religion. I thought we have freedom of speech. Well, did you know that? Just think about it. In the majority of the history of the world and in the majority of countries, they don't have freedom of religion and freedom of speech. We've been graced to have that for the most of America's history. We are so accustomed to it and used to it. We can't even conceive of not having freedom of religion or speech, although that's being encroached upon year by year. The trajectory actually doesn't look good for Christians, especially fundamentalist Christians such as myself. Wait, did I say fundamentalist Christians? Well, that's how... I would be characterized, and you too. If you believe the Bible, literally, you're a fundamentalist. Don't make any distinctions. Crazy, uneducated wacko who believes literally the Bible. Well, that's me, and probably many of you as well. Anyway, so the Apostle Paul, so he gets thrown into prison. He gets beat up, imprisoned. Uh, They were whipped almost to the point of death, probably on their back with like a cane or uh, a long stick. They were released from prison, and now Paul and Silas, who just got beat up by the authorities, are still suffering their wounds. They are bruised. Maybe some ribs are cracked and broken. And they are about to venture 100 miles, probably on foot, to their next destination. 100 miles, bloodied, beaten, bruised, broken. Not giving up, still faithfully serving Jesus. And Paul's been doing this for three years, and it's the same routine. Hey, let's go to this city, preach the Bible, and get beat up by some people. Hey, that sounds great, Paul. Because that's what's been going on for three years. Paul was amazing. He knew his calling, living for Jesus. So let's see. Now he's going to go 100 miles to west. Now he's going to go to this very significant city called Thessalonica. Let's go ahead and read it. Uh, Point number one. regarding Paul's paradigm or how he did ministry as a missionary. He was selective. That's point number one. He was selective. Paul was strategic in choosing an outpost. Paul was selective and made priorities of where he was going to go, where he was going to stop, where he was going to stay, where he was going to invest his time and energy. 
there was just a city that he came across. It wasn't necessarily where he, he was going to stay or where God wanted him to be. He was very selective. We see this through the book of Acts. And that his selectivity is very important because this is what you have to do in ministry, in church, as a Christian, or just in life. You have so many choices. You've got to be selective in your priorities. And you can't make the selections based strictly on your own opinion or the will of man or putting your thumb in the air to check which way the winds are blowing. As a Christian, we need to be very careful and discerning in our choices and selective in terms of where we're going to go and invest our time and energy. And that's what Paul did. He was prayerful. We know that. Paul was a prayer warrior. He was exemplary in prayer. He puts most Christians to shame with respect to his prayer life. He also sought the direction of the Holy Spirit. That's clear in Acts chapter 16 where Paul thought, well, I think the will of God is to go this way. And the Holy Spirit somehow communicated to Paul, no. You don't go that way. Could have been through providential circumstances, closing the door. Well, let's go this way, thinking the will of God was that way. The Holy Spirit said no. So he was sensitive to the leading of the Spirit of God in his life. And that usually comes through what Scripture says, the counsel of godly people, being routinely and regularly in prayer, living an obedient life, and being able to properly discern what's going on around you. And that's how Paul could discern the will of God. So he was selective. And so the evidence of his selectivity here is in verse 1. Now, when they had traveled, now when Paul and Silas had left Philippi, leaving prison, bloodied, beaten, humiliated, they went on to their next destination. Now, when they had traveled probably a good 30-plus miles to a significant city called Amphipolis, they didn't, they didn't stop and preach there. They probably just stayed over the, overnight there. They could have gone there. There were people there. There were candidates there, but he chose not to go there. Next night, they get up and go, and they travel another 30 miles. It says they also went on and passed through Apollo, Apollonia. So there's two significant cities, lots of people living there. Paul chooses not to stay there. Rather, they continue on, Paul and Silas. So now it's a three-day journey traveling ultimately 100 miles to Thessalonica. This is evidence of Paul being selective and wise in his ministry. Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia, this area. Macedonia is like northern Greece. And so he passes up these smaller towns and goes to the more significant town. His job and his calling from God was to preach the gospel to the whole Gentile world. And Paul knew his time was limited. He needed to be the best steward of his time and resources as possible. So he goes to the larger cities, the significant cities, the cities that will have impact. If he could preach the gospel, win converts there, then train those Christians and those Christians that then could reach out and reach their communities and the suburbs and the smaller towns. That's That was Paul's model. So this was quite a challenge. And so he comes to Thessalonica. So he is being selective. We need to do the same thing in our ministry. Being wise, being prayerful, led of the Spirit, not willy-nilly, off the cuff. So this town, uh, Thessalonica, was actually a free Greek city as opposed to a Roman colony, theoretically democratic, in terms of the rights of the people, how they elected their officials, their authorities, local civil authorities, free Greek city. The language that everybody knew was Greek. There may have been dialects as well, but everybody knew Greek, and Paul would preach in Greek. 
Thessalonica at the time probably had 100,000 people, they think, historically living there. 100,000 people, that was very significant for Paul's day. So he could make a big splash, possibly. Uh, the, the demographics were mixed, dominated by Greeks, and actually dominated by Greek pagans. Rampant idolatry, rampant sexual immorality. As a matter of fact, sexual immorality was part of the typical religion. So that was there. Then they had the influence of Roman paganism as well. But they also had a minority of Jews, but enough Jews to actually have a synagogue. So there were unbelieving Old Testament Jews there. They had a synagogue. And also there were Greeks who were kind of interested in Judaism because they were probably uh, just didn't buy into the paganism or they were sick of uh, the Greek paganism or just simply found it empty. And they found that Judaism talked about one God, a monotheistic God, a, a God revealed in scriptures, sacred scriptures, and they were fascinated by that. And so they became known as God-fearers. These were Greeks who started going to synagogue and wanted to learn the Old Testament but hadn't fully converted to Judaism yet. And so that's some of the diversity of the demographics that Paul's entering into here as he goes into this very large city in his day. Thessalonica, it's amazing, 2,000 years later, this city still exists. You, maybe some of you actually been to modern-day Thessalonica or Thessaloniki. Um, still a port city right on the port. They say a, a hundred, or one million people populate that city today and its surrounding area. One million people. As a matter of fact, you can go to Thessaloniki today and see ruins from 2,000 years ago. You can see rocks and stones from Paul's day. You can see a limestone with an engraving with a word in it that is found only in Acts chapter 17 in this passage. Polytarchus, 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 civil authorities, ruling authorities. And for years, critics of the Bible, when they saw that in verse 6 here of this passage, where Paul went to uh, or the city authorities were called Polytar- Polytarchus. That's, that's not a word. That's made up. You can't find that in anywhere in Greek literature or Greek culture. Anywhere. And then lo and behold, they unearth a piece of stone. Guess where? In the area of Macedonia, right where Paul had his ministry. And engraved, and you can see it this day, is the word Polytarchus. Which fits exactly with what this passage says. This is real history. Very encouraging. So anyway, the Apostle Paul was selective in his ministry, and, and he's gonna, he thinks he can have a huge impact as he goes to Thessalonica and preaches the gospel, and he was right. As we go through these cities and uh, watching Paul's ministry in Acts, it's always good to go to the epistles that correspond to them. So he plants a church in Thessalonica, and then you could read the two books in the Bible called First and Second Thessalonians. Those are letters that Paul wrote shortly after visiting this city. He planted a church. He was only there for two months. And then he, he gives background about what his experience was like when he was in Thessalonica. Very short period of time, maybe two months at most. He was there. He never returned again. And it's amazing to see the behind-the-scenes information of how Paul related to these people after they heard his gospel and got saved. So Paul was selective. Point number two, what else did Paul do with respect to ministry? Well, he was selective, sought the will of God, goes to a city, and if possible, the first thing he does is he goes to the synagogue. That's point number two, synagogue. Synagogue, Paul went to the Jews first. So the, the end of verse 1, it says, Now 
when Paul and Silas had traveled through these two cities. Then they came to Thessalonica. Stop there where there was a synagogue of the Jews. A synagogue of the Jews. And verse two says, and according to Paul's custom. See, that's what he did regularly. If there was a city he was going to stop and preach, he would always first and foremost, he would find a synagogue. Let's go find the synagogue and we will visit there and hopefully get to preach there. Why did Paul do that? Well, he was Jewish. Paul didn't just jettison everything Jewish about him when he became a Christian. He was a fulfilled Jew. He still went to synagogue as a Christian. He was a trained rabbi, a master of the Old Testament. The only difference now is that he has been filled with the spirit of Jesus Christ after salvation. And God opened his eyes, his spiritual eyes, so that he could understand the Old Testament for the first time in his life as a Jew. He understood that Jesus was the fulfillment of it. So he was a, a rabbi, a Jew, and he would go into a town. And if he saw Jews, he would be a Jew unto the Jews. First Corinthians nine. To maximize the effectiveness of ministry for these people. <clears throat> also being a trained rabbi and very respected. They would give him the floor. They'd let him preach. That was customary. He's a visitor comes into town. He's also with Silas, highly respected. And they learned that Silas is a Jew. That Silas, oh, you're from Jerusalem? You know uh, the apostles? You know uh, Gamaliel or whoever, the influential Jews from Jerusalem? No doubt that was very significant to these Jews. And so they invited the apostle Paul to preach in their synagogue. These are not saved Jews yet. They haven't even heard about Jesus necessarily. They haven't heard the fullness of the gospel. But most of all, Paul went to the Jews first because Romans 1, 16, where he wrote his epistle to the Romans, he said that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jews first, and then also to the Greeks. And Paul followed that model. He would always go to the Jews first. If there was an opportunity, then he would move on to the Gentiles. God, throughout history, started the Jewish nation so that they would be a conduit and a channel to the rest of the world to bring the truth of the Messiah. Historically, God used the Jews historically. God used the Jews from the time of Abraham, 2,000 years, all the way up until the time of Christ. God used the nation of Israel to bring the Messiah, Jesus Christ, into the world. Jesus is a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. The 12 founding apostles were Jewish. The first church was Jewish, Jewish Christian. God used the Jews, and God still has a place and a purpose for the Jews in the future. The Jews wrote the Bible that we are blessed by. And in Romans 9 through 11, God has a very specific purpose for the Jews in terms of the culmination of world history. Absolutely amazing. So let's go on. So Paul was selective. Paul always went to the synagogue first. Then number three. Well, what did he do when he got into the synagogue or whenever he preached and had opportunity? Verse 2. According to Paul's custom, he went to them. That would be in the synagogue. Who's them? The Jews in the synagogue. And for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. This is just, this is loaded, this verse. <clears throat> Paul's custom. That's a key phrase, actually, in this passage. According to Paul's custom. This was his routine. This was his mandate. This was his pattern. This is what he did. He wasn't going to deviate from it. And many of the principles being applied here, the custom going to the synagogue first, but also the custom that he always did was when he reasoned 
or dialogued or disputed or taught or talked and interacted with the people he was talking to. He always did it from the scriptures. Now, that, that is tremendously important. That was his routine. That was his custom. There, there are people that say, well, you know, Paul sometimes kind of amended his ways and his approach and his methodology and even his message depending upon who the crowd was. If you went to the Jews, yeah, he'd use the Old Testament. But sometimes when he went to the Greeks, who weren't familiar with the Old Testament, he wouldn't use the Bible. He wouldn't use Scripture. He wouldn't use divine revelation. He wouldn't use the Old Testament. That is not true. It says right here, according to his custom, this is what he did. And you track his ministry all throughout the New Testament, he always did the same thing. It was preach to people and reason with them from the scriptures, not reason from a pool of human wisdom or man-made philosophy or natural theology that separated from the Bible. Paul never did that. Some people say, well, you know, Paul, he was a master at rhetoric. No, he wasn't. Well, he spoke Greek and he interacted with the Epicureans and the highfalutin, highly educated Greeks, and he depended upon his masterful delivery of rhetoric. No, he didn't. No, he wasn't. As a matter of fact, the Corinthians mocked Paul for being a stuttering, muttering fool who was unpolished with no rhetoric. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, you know what? When I come to town, I don't use rhetoric. I don't use flattering speech. He's referring to Greek rhetoric, literally. People thought I was foolish when I came and preached. That's okay. I am a fool. I'm an empty vessel. And all I want is Jesus to speak through me. I do one thing. I don't come with flattering words. Or trying to deceive people. It's a message. Simple message. I'm focused on it and being a servant. And I do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I do it with conviction. And it's not rhetoric. He even says that. If you go and read First Thessalonians. As a matter of fact, I'll read it to you. First Thessalonians tells us how Paul went into Thessalonica, which was a Greek city with the Greek language, with their predecessors of Plato and Aristotle, Socrates, Paul didn't care. That didn't impress him. What was his approach? Well, he writes to the Thessalonians, to the church, uh, to the Thessalonians in God. Paul, Silas, Timothy. We thank God for you. We give thanks for you. God, Paul loved these people. He only knew him for two months. Making mention of you all the time in my prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, God's choice of you, his, how he selected you, how he elected you unto salvation, and he did it through our gospel, verse 5. We, he came with the gospel, not rhetoric. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. We did have to preach. We did have to speak. But there was something more that complemented our words, and that was it also came in power and in the Holy Spirit. Paul was different. He was distinct. He was like Jesus. Whenever Jesus talked or preached to the crowds, people were mesmerized and they were in awe. Wow. Never did such a man speak as he did with so, so uniquely and with such authority. He is not like the Pharisees or the learned Sadducees. He's different somehow. That's how Paul was. Why? Because it was scripture. It was divine truth. It was special revelation. And it was coupled with his humility, his love for Christ, his love for people, and also the power of the Holy Spirit. It couldn't be replicated or duplicated by human convention. Absolutely unique. Preached with, and then he goes on and says uh, that we didn't, we spoke the gospel. We didn't do it. Verse five of chapter two. We never came with flattering speech. There it is. We, did, we were not dependent upon rhetoric. That is superficial. That is shallow. We're not orators. We are preachers of God's truth. 
Verse 5, as you know, nor did we come with pretext for greed. We weren't in this for the money. God is our witness, nor did we speak, uh, seek glory from men. We weren't men pleasers. That's a distinctive of biblical ministry, a distinctive of biblical preaching and teaching, where you want to be faithful to God and preach the truth with a heart of love, with integrity, but you know what? You, tr- you tr- entrust the results to God. Wow, people might get upset and get mad at me for saying this. Well, it's in the Bible. It's what God wants me to say. That was Paul's attitude. This is the good news. This is the only thing that saves souls. And for some reason, some people didn't like that. So that's what Paul means when he said, we were not seeking glory from men. Like significant Roman orators did, like Cicero. That was important to him. And also important Greek philosophers. That was important that they be lauded by men. Paul would have none of it. We are servants for Christ. We don't seek the glory of men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. Not only that, verse 7, it says, but we, not only did he come with the truth of the gospel to set people free from their sins, and it was the only message that would do that, and he came in the power of the Holy Spirit, so that's supernatural empowerment. Not only that, Paul's attitude that he came in. Listen to this, verse 7. But we proved, me and Silas, and then Timothy joined along, eventually, but we proved to be gentle among you. What does that mean? Does that mean he preached like a sissy in soft tones? No. He was still, he, he used the strong words for the proclamation. He, he spoke with conviction. He just said that. With conviction, with power, with authority, binding truth, beckoning with his hands, it says in the book of Acts, of how he preached, raising his voice. That was the delivery. But with respect to his attitude towards the people, he loved the people. He loved the people. He saw every person as a candidate for salvation. Every person he knew was made in the image of God. He loved people. That's what it meant. And so when it came down to one-on-one interactions with people, he would be gentle. He'd want to know their name. He'd want to know their needs. He wanted to know their struggles. How do I know that? Because he said he ceaselessly prayed for the Thessalonians after he left town. And he just met these people. He goes on, we proved to be gentle among you. So he wasn't lording it over, domineering, manipulating people, abusing his authority. He was a servant to the people. It's amazing. We were gentle among you as, get this, how, well, how gentle? As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection. For you. So there was this tremendous affection that Paul developed with these new believers. And that, that's a distinctive of biblical Christianity, of true Christianity, where in a moment of time, you can have the deepest level of personal intimacy and affection of someone you recently met who's a Christian, or get this, a Christian you've never met before. It's amazing. As a matter of fact, at the end of this passage, they're going to help him out of town. It says the brethren were so, caring so much for Paul, they were helping him They cared about him. They had deep affection for him, and they just met him. How is that possible? Because if you are a true born-again Christian, you are in the family of God. And every other Christian is an eternal brother and sister in Christ. And you have the Spirit of God living in you. And that Spirit of God resonates with other believers. And there's an immediate uh, click where you know this person belongs to the church of Christ. This person is the part of the body of Christ. This person is my spiritual brother in Christ. 
And nowhere do you see that more than when you travel the world and you go to somewhere, like I've been privileged to go to India or to Africa or to Honduras uh, or to Russia, all these places. I don't know the language, but through an interpreter, instantly I am I have a deep affection and draw to these believers from all over the world. It's amazing. And I, I'm there for a week, and then we, we love each other, and we embrace and kiss and as we depart and stay in touch, and they look forward for my return, and I become concerned for them. Only a Christian can experience that and know the deepness of that intimacy that is at a very real and spiritual level. And that's what Paul feels with these Thessalonians when after they get saved. He loves them before they're saved, and he relates to them with the greatest of intimacy after they are saved. But it comes down to the scripture. Verse 2, according to Paul's custom, he went to in there in the synagogue, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them. He dialogued with them is the word. He dialogued. Uh, that means argue, debate, dispute, teach, teach with question and answer, but always the emphasis is on at the intellectual level, at the knowledge level. This is, In other words, this is not an emotional message. This is not a mystical message. This is objective truth, and you need to think about it. Christianity is a thinking religion with objective, transcendent truth that came from God on high. And we need to call people and challenge people to think. Use your mind. Don't be deceived by emotion, the circumstances, mysticism, tradition, your past, your fears. Truth. And that's what he's doing. Those are the verbs being used. Dialegomai. Reasoning with them. He wasn't depending upon the laws of logic invented by Aristotle here. That's not what he's talking about. He is reasoning from the Bible. Here's what the Bible says. Like Billy Graham, that's what he's doing here. The Bible says, the Bible says. That's what Paul said. Billy Graham didn't make that up. Paul did. The Bible. No, Jesus did. That's what he's doing. Reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining to them. That's another very specific word, opening up to them so they can see it. That is exegesis and giving evidence. Another very specific Greek word, kata angelo, the, the message, laying out the message, alleging, laying out evidence that is objective, could be seen and observed right here from the scriptures. You are Jews. You believe in the Old Testament. Here it is. That's what he's doing. This is deep. This is challenging. I guarantee these people had never heard anything like it. It wasn't rote. It wasn't routine. It wasn't the typical ritual that they heard week after week after week after week in their typical synagogues. This was a new way of approaching the Bible. It was from God Almighty. Reasoning with them from the scriptures. Preaching the Bible. Preaching the Bible. That's the only thing a Christian should be doing in ministry is preaching the Bible when trying to communicate truth. We preach the Bible. Grace Bible Fellowship. That's what we were committed to when the church started. Well, what are we going to be known for? Hopefully just preaching the Bible. The Bible is sufficient. The Bible is supernatural. The Bible changes lives. The Bible is God's word. And that's what Paul did. He is our model. He's our example. That was his custom. Not human philosophy. So he was selective. Synagogue. Scripture. Number four. It's an S. Savior. As he preached from the scripture, he was focused in terms of the culmination and the most important thing. You know, there's a lot of things you can talk to unbelievers about. Some of them are actually kind of distracting and confusing. 
Man, you got five minutes to talk to an unbeliever who's actually interested and wants to talk. There are priorities that you should talk about. Okay, the bus comes in four minutes. What do I talk about? Guess what I'm going to say? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That was Paul. Not arguing and debating about creation versus evolution. That's not going to win them to the kingdom of God, and they're not going to buy into your arguments anyway. Uh, election and not and etc. No. The reality, I mean, just on and on it goes. Like trying to explain things that are incomprehensible to them, they can't understand without the help of the Spirit of God anyway. So you talk about Jesus and the message of Jesus, the gospel, and that's what Paul did. He emphasized the Savior. Look at verse 3. So he's explaining to them from the Scriptures, but what is he talking about? The Jews, uh, verse 3, opening up the Scriptures, giving evidence for what? That the Christ, the Messiah, Mashiach, had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Man, that would have just shocked most of the Jews in that synagogue. They believed in the Old Testament. They believed in a coming Messiah, but all they believed, for the most part, because of tradition had shrouded the truth about the coming Messiah was the Messiah was going to be like King David or King Solomon. And he's strictly going to be a military and political conqueror and victor. And they wanted nothing to do with any hints that the Messiah would have to suffer. And that's why the typical Jew was an unbeliever in Paul's day when they got to Isaiah 53, where it said that the Messiah would be crushed by God. Or Psalm 22, verse 1, where it said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And as a description of some man being pierced in the hands and the feet a thousand years before Christ was born, the Jews wanted nothing to do with those passages. They would assign it to someone else. That can't be the Messiah. And so the view they took was, this is referring to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is the suffering servant, not the Messiah. Look at how much we've had to suffer. We were imprisoned by the Egyptians. We were in captivity under the Babylonians. We've suffered our whole lives. We are the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And they supplanted the truth of predictions about the Messiah who came and had to die. So that's what Paul's emphasizing. The need for the Messiah to die. And that, that probably just angered and incensed several of the Jews in that synagogue. What are you talking about? Messiah means conqueror. Messiah is not going to die. That is a stumbling block to the Jews. Well, wait a minute. And then there's Greeks there listening. Well, wait, Paul. What did you say your Savior, your Lord, your King had to die in humiliation as a criminal? Are you serious? That is idiotic. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, I preach one thing. It is Christ and him crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and absurdity to the Greeks. And yet salvation for those who believe. And he would say at the end of Galatians 6.14. May I never boast in anything save the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had one message. And it was the gospel of Jesus Christ. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The need for Jesus to die for sinners. To rise again to conquer sin, hell, death, the devil. To appease the wrath of God. That was his message. He never deviated. He never changed. It was Christ-centered. All about Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15. What is the gospel? This is the gospel. That Christ. That's the first word of the gospel. Christ. 
that Christ died according to the scriptures, that Christ was buried and rose again according to the script. It is all about Jesus. Seems rather simple, doesn't it? Shallow and superficial to some people, absurd to others, nonsense. But salvation to those who believe. And that's what Paul did. And he says at the end of verse 3, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Christ-centered. Well, what typically happened when Paul did this going through his routine? Well, there was salvation. Number five, that's good news. There was typically salvation. Some would believe. City to city to city. Some would believe. Preach the message. Some You're preaching to a crowd of a thousand. Some might believe eventually. God will draw the elect out at his sovereign discretion in time. Salvation is the byproduct of preaching the gospel faithfully. Verse 4, and some of them, some, not all of them, some, some were persuaded. Some heard, some believed. God worked on their heart with the Holy Spirit, opened up their spiritual eyes. And so as a result, and they believed, and as a result, they joined Paul and Silas. We've got some Thessalonians getting saved here. This is awesome. They joined Paul immediately. They were adopted in the family of God, and now they see Paul as a brother in Christ and have this deep supernatural affection for him. They know he's a servant of God. He speaks the truth. Some, some, a minority, some. Well, who were they? Well, they joined Paul, and it says a large number, not the majority, though, but there was a large number of God-fearing Greeks. Not a large number of the Jews. Not, not a large number of the Jews in the synagogue. That hardly ever happened in any city he was at. Not a large number of the Jews. The Jews were hardened for the most part. That was the exception. But a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So who got saved here? Well, there's four groups of people. There were some of the Jews got saved. Some actually responded positively, Jews. Then God-fearers. That's uh, Greeks who almost converted over to Judaism, God-fearers. Then there were also just Greeks. That's just absolute, total pagans. And then the, the fourth group, which I think is interesting that's mentioned here, and, and a number of the elite women, or a number of the leading women, or a number of the significant women. That's kind of odd. This is like the third time where Luke includes that. And among those who believed were the leading women, significant women, or just women. Why, why are you doing that, Luke? Well, I think it's Paul's trying, or Luke's and the Holy Spirit trying to show the gospel message is for everybody. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew, or a Greek, or a half Jew, or a man, or a woman, or elitist in society, or from the dregs in society. The gospel message is for everyone. The diversity of the gospel appeal is to every human soul. And that was also a part of Paul's paradigm. He never changed his message. He never changed his methodology. He never changed his focus because he knew every human being was made in the image of God. That's all that mattered. And there were universal binding transcendent principles that resonated with every human being who was made in the image of God. Therefore, you don't have to change your message. And that's why evangelism really is simple and easy in terms of the message. The message is always the same. It doesn't matter where you go to. If you're talking to Chinese people or Hindus in India or the Russians, or people in Honduras, or Mexico, all these places where I have been privileged to go, I always bring the same message. Why do I do that? Because it's in the Bible. And it's always the same message. And here's here are the essentials and the ABCs of the message we bring to every person, no matter their background, their upbringing, their dysfunctional home, their sinful habits, the color of their skin, the language they speak, the culture they're in, the money they don't make, the country they were born. 
It doesn't matter. It's the same message. And here are the main things that Christians preach. You, you can tell any person, you were created by Elohim, the creator of the universe. You were directly created by Almighty God. How do you know that? Because that's what the Bible says, and that's what God has revealed. You were created by Elohim. Also, number two, you came from Adam. You came from Adam and Eve. They were real people. That is how you got here. They are your ancestors. Number three, created by Elohim, came from Adam. Number three, you are a sinner and separated from Almighty God that created you. Adam's sin that was bequeathed to you, you were born a sinner. You are separated from your creator. He is now your enemy, and you are his enemy. And the wrath of God abides on you. You need salvation. You need to be rescued. How do you know that? That's what God has revealed through the Bible. What else? Well, because you're a sinner, actually, this is true of everybody, and you're a human being, you're going to die. You're going to die. And then there's judgment, death and judgment. And you'll be judged based on your sin. Is it forgiven or not? And then number five, you can't save yourself. That's a universal message. You cannot save your good works don't matter. How often you go to church or practice your religion? You cannot earn your way to God. You can't earn forgiveness. It's not about meritorious works. Can't be done. Absolutely impossible. You cannot save yourself. And then finally, number six, the only answer is Jesus. He is the Savior. He's the only one that can save you. That is the Christian message that is universal and appeals to and works with every sinner that would believe in him. We don't need to change our message. Paul didn't. So we don't go around. We're not preaching morality and religion and political correctness and good works and save the earth and the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. None of that. Love yourself. Have self-esteem. Believe in yourself. You can do anything you want. No, you can't. Preach the truth. Things will get better. No, they aren't. Read First and Second Thessalonians. Paul's message is the opposite of things are going to get better. You know what he tells them? You are suffering. I know it. And it's going to get worse. Endure. Persevere. Lean on God. Trust in Christ. Look to the future. He's coming again. That's his message. That's a realistic view of the world and of sin. And we don't preach political activism, social justice, on and on. The messages go. It's the message of salvation in Christ and him alone. Number six. After salvation is suffering. Sinners always fight the truth. <clears throat> verse five, but the Jews. So, you know, the good news is in verse four. Man, look at all these people that get saved and the significant women. Oh, by the way, another point about those women. Leading women. Christianity is the only. Worldview. Religion in the history of the world. That put women in their proper place. And what is that? Elevated women, especially in Paul's day 2,000 years ago. Elevated women to their proper place. Where should women be elevated to? Well, it's in Genesis chapter 1. Day 6. The culmination of creation. God's going to make man in his own image. That's what it says. In the image of God, let us make man in our image. And in the image of God, he created them, male and Female. Male and female are equal before God in terms of being made in the image of God, in terms of equal dignity, value, sacredness, precious to the Creator, precious to the Savior, men and women. 
the Bible is the only worldview that has attributed that correctly to women. I mean, think about the religions of the world even now and even in Paul's day. Men were here, women were down here. Hinduism. Hinduism has taught and continues to teach that women are down here. They're a lower subspecies of humanity. Islam. Women are down here, men are up here. A man, a husband, can have four wives. It's in the Quran. And he can beat his wife if necessary. That's what it says. And even in Muslim countries today, women don't have equal rights with men. And I could just go on and on with worldviews and false religions. But no, Jesus treated, uh, treated women on an equal par with men. The Apostle Paul did as well. The Apostle Paul read or, or wrote in Galatians 3.28. It doesn't matter if you're, what your ethnicity is. There is no difference between Jew and Greek, slave or free, male or female, you are all one in Jesus Christ. Paul wrote that. Remember, I took a class down at a major university down in Southern California after seminary in English, and I took about 10 or 11 classes there. Major, large, public university in the state of California. The most multicultural uh, university in America is what they boasted at the time when I went there. And every professor represented that accord- accordingly and authoritatively. And it was a literature class I was taking, and the professor just week after week uh, criticizing Christianity and the Bible and white people and Republicans and conservatives and Christians and everything basically that I was um, week after week. And I'm, for the most part, sitting there silently and the, until finally it was like the end of the quarter, and they're bashing on the Bible, calling it Western literature, which it's not, and bashing on Christians who are anti-women misogynists, we hate women, and we don't believe women are equal. And then I just, I had to, this is a literature class, can I quote some literature? So I did. I quoted, I read Genesis 1 to the whole class, first chapter in the Bible. And I got down to verse 26. God made every human being in his image, and it says so right here. God said, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he created them. Get this male and female. The Bible teaches that men and women are equal, and the whole class was just, (gasps) they'd never heard that. They never read that, and actually the students really appreciated that. I don't know about the teacher. But the students really appreciated that. But I was just reminded of, wow, these are educated people. They're all working on their master's degrees, and it's like they'd never heard this before in their life. They just believed that a caricature about Christianity. So we preach the truth. Uh, number six, suffering sinners always fight the truth, verses 5 through 9. But the Jews, becoming jealous... And that's what they typically did. They'd hear Paul. They'd hear the truth. They'd hear about a suffering Messiah. They couldn't handle that. Uh, They were also jealous because Paul was taking converts away. These God-fearers who were Greeks on the brink of becoming uh, full-blooded Old Testament Jews. And then Paul takes them away because they get saved to Christianity. And he's stealing uh, the fish out of their pond. They don't like that. They are jealous, filled with envy. Jealousy turns, percolates, and turns into Anger, anger percolates and turns into violence and murder. And that's the cycle we see. The Jews becoming jealous of Paul and his message. And it's not personal. It's just business. It's not personal. There's this jealousy and hatred of the truth is what it is. Jealous taking along some wicked man from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. So that's what they did. They would 
go out and get people, loafers in the marketplace, idlers on the corners, uh, street corners. We have them today. Bad characters, says the NIV. Lewd fellows of the baser sort, says King James. So the Jews, you know what? We need to get a mob. We need to create a crowd. We need to rent a mob, buy a mob, whatever. Rules for radicals. That's a little book. Tells you how to do it. George Soros, he's doing it today. We're going to get a mob. People have nothing better to do. They're just looking for trouble, standing idly by. The city of Thessalonica was filled with idle people. We know that from Paul's letters. And the Jews create this wicked, mindless mob who follow their directions, get them from the marketplace, hanging out in the streets. They don't have a home, don't have an identity, don't have a job. Formed a mob, set the city in an uproar. Now, that's what you don't do in the Roman Empire. You do not create civil unrest. They will squelch it. They will throw you in prison. They create an uproar, create a mob. Then they just say, you know what? Off with his head. And so they begin looking for Paul and Silas. And they find out, oh, Paul and Silas, they're staying at this guy Jason's house. Found out who Jason was. Go to Jason's house, end of verse 5. And they were seeking to bring Paul and Silas out of Jason's house to the people, to the mob, no doubt, to kill him. Verse 6. But the Jews and the mob, they couldn't find Paul and Silas at Jason's house. Why? Well, then they began dragging out Jason. Dragged him to the marketplace and some brethren, new believers with him. And they took them to the city authorities, to the magistrates, to the local civil judges, the, the polytarchus. Supposed to be fair judges. And they were shouting, these men who have upset the world or have turned the world upside down. Paul and Silas have turned the world upside down. They've created an uproar. They are committing treason. They're creating civil unrest. This is the same thing they accuse Jesus of, Peter of, the apostles of, and Paul in every city that he's been in. Because it worked. The Romans would respond in the Roman Empire. These men have created unrest. Created unrest. Well, actually, it was the mob. Come here also. What else did they do? Verse 7. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Caesar is king. He's the only king. Saying that there is another king. This King Jesus. That was treason. That made Caesar jealous. That warranted the death penalty. So they don't have a fair trial. They just throw out accusations. The witnesses aren't even allowed to speak. They're not even there. They're just talking about them behind their back. Verse 8, they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. It worked, the lies. Verse 9, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. What does that mean? Well, Jason agreed to give the local authorities money and promised that, you know what? Okay, I won't. Paul will never come back to the city again. That's what he did. And Paul never did come back to Thessalonica again. That's why he did write those two letters saying, I love you, I miss you, I pray for you, I hear your faith is growing, it's awesome, you're being a witness to everybody around you, I wish I could come see you, First Timothy 2, or First Thessalonians 2.18, but I can't come and see you because Satan has prevented me from coming to see you again. What is that? He's referring to this, took a pledge. Jason paid bond to pacify the local authorities so that Paul would never be allowed in Thessalonia again. This is part of Paul's suffering. He was always suffering for the gospel. Let's go to verse 10 and following. And that's, uh, well, in light of suffering, God's in control. He is sovereign. He watches over his people. He takes care of their needs. And at times he intervenes and he actually protects. Sometimes he provides physical protection. Sometimes he doesn't. It's up to God's sovereign discretion. Verse 10. 
the brethren there in Thessalonica, new Christians in Thessalonica, heard about the crowd, heard they were coming to Jason's house, so they immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to the next town, Berea. So that when the mob arrived, they went in the house or the synagogue of the Jews in Berea. Verse 11. Now, these were more, uh, the Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, Jewish unbelievers in the synagogue, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So Paul goes to the next city in Berea, preaching the gospel in the synagogue, and these Jews were a little different. They were open. Wow. We've never heard this before. Oh, interesting. Is that true? Is that really in Deuteronomy? Let's look. And it says they were examining the scriptures daily. In Thessalonica, it was just three Saturdays. Here it is daily. Day after day, day after day, interacting with Paul, talking to Paul. By the way, what was Paul doing in Thessalonica and Berea during the week? He was working hard, being a tent maker, he tells us in Thessalonians. But he's having great success that's refreshing to him here in the next town of Berea, going to the synagogue. And these Jews in the synagogue were examining Scripture daily to see if what Paul said was true. Verse 12, therefore, many of them in the synagogue believed, which was very different than previous synagogues, not many. And along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. So there it is again, women and men. Gospels for everyone. Verse 13, but when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds in Berea. So here, these hateful Jews in Thessalonica traveling over 50 miles to stir up and create a stink in Berea to shut Paul and his ministry down. That's how hateful they were. Verse 14, then immediately the brethren, you got new believers in, in Berea. They love Paul. They've embraced him as a brother in Christ. They care for him. They don't want him to get hurt, and so they send him out. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Verse 15, now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. So in verse 10 and verse 14 and 15, you see this care, this love that God used to keep Paul safe. Paul had more work to do, and God knew it. God was in charge of Paul's schedule and itinerary. God knew that Paul had another 10 plus years of ministry. He's not going to be killed yet. Now those, verse 15, who escorted Paul, brought him as far as Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So on point number seven, safety. God protected Paul until he fulfilled his mission. As we keep going through the book of Acts, we're going to see city after city, chapter after chapter, Paul getting rejected, suffering, beat up, chased out of town. Yet God is faithful. God protects him. I said it was 50 A.D. God's going to protect Paul all the way up till about 66 A.D. Where Paul said in 2 Timothy, I finished the course. I fulfilled my mission. He was ready to go to heaven, and that's when he died. And that's true of every person. That's true of every believer. God knows how long our life is here, if you're a Christian, how long he wants you to serve him. David said in Psalm 31, my times, O Lord, are in your hands. Uh, Job 14.5 says, man's days are determined. Man's days are determined. The number of man's months is with you, O God. And his limits, God, you have set that he cannot pass. Job 14.5. 
God knows exactly how long we have to live on this earth. We need to be reminded of that. And in the meantime, we need to lean upon God to be faithful stewards of every day he gives us and every breath he gives us all for his glory. And with that, let's go ahead and close in prayer and thank the Father this morning. Father, we do thank you for this day and our time together in your word. I thank you that we can count on the book of Acts as reliable history because you have preserved it through your Holy Spirit, through providence, through faithful believers of the ages. And I thank you that we can understand it if we're Christians because we have the Holy Spirit. Help us now, Lord, to obey it, to assimilate it into our life. And God, those who, who don't know you yet, don't, don't understand the reality of the gospel in a very personal way, that you would open up their heart and their mind to understand your glorious truth that the Lord Jesus can save them from their sin and transform them and change them. And they can be adopted into the family of God, inherit eternal life, and be with you forever. Thank you for that great and glorious truth. And we thank you for this day. We love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.